right, friends, Greg Kokel here, back in the saddle after having a couple of weeks off, had some medical issues to deal with, and uh, thankfully we had a plan to cover for me. I think we did some special things, right? We didn't have a, uh, we didn't have a, a, a stand-in host, I think, Amy, did we? Uh, did we, we didn't have a stand-in host for, for when I was gone, right? We just had a special, we had some special fill-in things that I did in advance, or we dovetailed some other things I'd done with other people. Any event, it, it's me now. It is I, rather, to be uh, grammatically correct, c'est <clears throat> moi, and uh, I am here to chat with you. I thank you for being part of this, and uh, to take your calls at 855 243 Nine seven five. Now, those of you uh, watching, listening, whatever, uh, on the direct feed um, in real time, that's the number you can call. If you're not, you can call during our broadcast times, which are Mondays from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, if you call that number, we'll take your call. If you're calling internationally, we have a different number, one five six two. 424-8229, but for most of you, 855-243-9975 will suffice. Uh, we're just a couple of days away from our final event uh, for the reality season. We'll be in Augusta, Georgia in a couple of days. In fact, uh, I'm broadcasting here on Tuesday and on Thursday. Is that right? Yeah, Thursday. I climb, climb on a plane with the rest of our team to head out for Augusta and uh, for the final reality apologetics event we have about 600 people that are signed up already room for more no problem there uh, just go to realityapologetics.com we are uh, thrilled to be closing out this season with no absentees due to sickness held behind by <clears throat> any problems with covid or anything like that and um and we're well, we've been praying like crazy especially our canadian brother tim Mr. B, uh, we were concerned about crossing the border so many times and the concerns and restrictions there, but the Lord has made it possible for there to be a full staff for each of our events, and we've had a thrilling time this last year. So this is the last round for Reality from Chaos uh, to Clarity in Augusta, Georgia, and uh, the details there, that would be April 22nd, 23rd, so Friday night and all day Saturday. And we start early on Friday, I think, the doors open at 5.30 or something like that, early, and or maybe even 4.30, but I think we start at 6 or 6.30, so it isn't like 7 to 9. We start early, we go late on Friday, lots of things going on on, the, on Friday night, the first night of our event, so looking forward to having you uh, be part of that. I got some more things coming up. I'll, I'll touch base with you the next hour, which would be <clears throat> um, actually... I guess Friday's podcast that you receive, but I uh, since today is um, the first show after Easter, I wanted to address something that really bothered me on Easter Sunday at a service I attended. Now Easter's great, right? Because you've got lots of people there, and it's something magnificent to focus on and celebrate. Lots of great songs associated with the resurrection, hymns and popular songs and whatever. And so I don't have any beef there. But this was this was a song that uh, <clears throat> has um, sweet lyrics um, and a say a nice a Bible camp melody. 
And so as we began to sing the song, I'm thinking, well, I like these words, but I, I think I know where this is going. And the song starts, we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living whatever foes may say. And this, of course, is fitting for the theme of Easter and the resurrection. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer and just the time I need him, he's always near. In all the world around me, I see his loving care. And though my heart grows weary, I never will despair. I like these lyrics. I know that he's leading through all the stormy blast. The day of his appearing will come at last. Great encouragement. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian. Lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ the King. The hope of all who seek him, the help of all who find, none other is so loving, so good and kind. Boy, I'm with that too. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. Oh, great. The ending. You ask me how we know he lives? Okay, I'm ready for it. He lives within my heart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Now, This um, song reflects a certain epistemology, okay? How we know what we know. Uh, this reflects an epistemology that focuses on religious experience. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong, as far as it goes, with, with in a sense, um, seeking justification for one's convictions based in one's religious experience, all right? Uh, there is a, a kind of a noble heritage to that and writings that have been done about it, and I, th- I, I think there, there is a, there, there, there's something there that's useful. This is one reason we may give our testimonies, but it has some liabilities, all right? Uh, first of all, we're not the only group of people who have testimonies, who have what we think is Jesus living in our heart. There are other groups that have the same uh, perspective, and they're they're not Christian, uh, or should I say, they may be posture as Christian, but their doctrine is so completely different than classical Christianity. It's simply not accurate to call them the same things. And by the way, all I'm identifying here is a difference of view. I'm not even saying who's right and who's wrong. I'm just saying you can have two totally different characterizations of this Jesus that allegedly lives in the heart of of both groups of religious people, and they both can't be right in their assessment of Jesus. That's one liability. But the other liability, um, or let me back off, there's a second liability, and then I'll give you the third, the final. The second liability is that, and I don't know about your own interior life, I am concerned, though, that there has been a a kind of inappropriate triumphalism that uh, we find in Christian circles, okay? And it's characterized, I think, to some degree in in the lyrics, though there is some balance in this song. He walks with me, he talks with me, I hear his voice of cheer, I, I see his hand of mercy, he's always near. And these are subjectivistic. This is kind of what I sense and what I feel, and of course that's how the song ends. But there's also, my heart grows weary, I will never despair. I know that he's leading through all the stormy blast. Okay, great. Well, I'm glad that there's a dual emphasis there that Christians sometimes have hard times. But during those hard times, guess what? 
it doesn't always feel like Jesus is living in my heart. My heart is not always filled with the presence of Jesus, just speaking autobiographically right now. Sometimes things seem pretty empty and dismal, emotionally. So if my epistemology of the reality of Christ the Savior in the world today is based on this awareness of Christ living in my heart, I have some serious vulnerabilities there. Unless there's something more. And what is the something more? Well, the something more is Easter Sunday. We live because He lives. And we know He lives because He rose from the dead. That's the point of Easter. He is risen. Yes, He is risen indeed. In fact, as a matter of reality, He is no longer in the grave. And the resurrection of Christ secures for us certain theological verities, for example, Paul says, and this is an interesting citation here, because critical scholars will dispute the Pauline authorship of a number of works generally attributed to Paul, but not the Book of Romans. Yet the Book of Romans starts out, and which is written somewhat early, all right? I mean, I don't know the exact date, but in the 50s, I suspect, maybe earlier. So within, say, 15 years of the resurrection. And Paul starts out that referring to Jesus as being declared with glory by the resurrection to be the Son of God. So you have high Christology there, Jesus the Son of God, and you also have the resurrection that he is proclaiming there. So, um, The way the New Testament writers verify the legitimacy of their convictions is through the actual resurrection of Jesus, which had been prophesied. You have that in Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost uh, preachment. What you see here, Peter says, is not a bunch of drunk people, but people who have been influenced by the Holy Spirit, which is poured out upon us according to the prophecy of Joel. And the reason it happened is because that man you killed has risen from the dead, and we are witnesses to that. Now, um, of course, we don't have the witnesses with us today. Uh, That was 2,000 years ago, and so some might think this represents a problem. But we have the record of the witnesses, and some of the, and many of the things they experienced and said. And so what I want to do is I just want to go back just a little bit to, in a sense, that record and, um, and, and talk about what minimally, in a certain sense, we can trust about that. Because if you think about Good Friday, I mean, we, we can rejoice about the theology of the cross, etc., etc. But on that Friday night, that was not a promising moment, because there are no poetic reflections on atonement. There was just a bloody, brutally beaten corpse hanging from a cross. Jesus was dead, and he was taken down, and he was buried, and the women were weeping, and the men were in hiding. And it was night, it was day, it was night again, and it all seemed over. That was the end of it. And then something happened. Now, exactly what happened 
has mystified historians. But um, it turns out, though, that given the breadth of critical scholarship, now when I say critical scholarship, I mean these are people who don't have necessarily a, a personal stake in the issue. They are there to figure out what they think actually is reliable in the historical record. What can we count on? So critical scholarship is not going to promote the resurrection of Christ, because that goes beyond, in their view, what history can tell us. In their view, history is a record of of natural phenomena, not supernatural phenomena. So this is why I mentioned critical scholars. Now, there are other scholars, too, who are open to supernatural phenomena if the evidence is adequate to indicate that's the explanation for the—the best explanation for the events. And that's the direction I'm going. Because critical scholars, um, in the last 50 years, it turns out that a majority of the New Testament scholars almost universally agree to four facts of history. In other words, they look at the records, the primary source historical documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the way we know them, but they see them as primary source historical documents. These are documents from history that give historical information or purport to, appear to, and that can be tested according to the standard ways that they test anything from antiquity that uh, that claim is to be historical, and they try to separate the wheat from the chaff, whatever, and they have ways of doing that. I talk about the details of that in the story of reality, by the way, if you want more, more uh, detail about the process. But the point is, having gone through that process, there actually are a number of things. I'm just going to limit them to four for the sake of being um, handy, that virtually every single one agrees on. And the first is that they agree that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross and was buried in a tomb. They don't, I mean, that is not contested. Uh, these, his, these scholars, these are people who know what they're doing, are not mythicists. They don't think this is mythology. And the reason is, is we have multiple attested, detailed witnesses of the events themselves. And Bart Ehrman, even, who is a critic of Christianity and even a critic of the documents, New Testament documents at some level, acknowledges clearly and has written a book about the history of Christ and that Jesus is an historical figure. And that he was crucified on a Roman cross and buried in a tomb is not in doubt. The second thing they agree on, almost to a person, though this is the one that has less than, in a sense, 99% affirmation, is that the tomb was empty Sunday morning. Now, so some might question that, but the reason that most don't is because if the body of Jesus was still in the tomb, no resurrection myth, as they would see it, could ever have gotten started. All you have to do is produce the body. There's the you, He rose, there he is. There's his corpse. And that would have been put to, just, just put to bed, that claim. No, the tomb was empty, which is why the, the, a, a, um, an idea began to circulate that the disciples stole the body. Okay? Now, I won't go into that 
claim, but I just want to to notice. I want you to notice that, given that there's a claim, and I just I just saw a video what yesterday or the day before yesterday. Uh, with Titus Kennedy, who is an archaeologist and has done a lot of work with the archaeology regarding Jesus' life, that uh, there's been an inscription that uh, from, is it Caligula? I don't know, the, the, the emperor in the 40s, um, where uh, that, that made it clear that it was, a, it was a capital crime to steal a body from a tomb. Uh, under certain circumstances. Now, this looks suspiciously like an attempt to um, you know, address the kind of idea that was being passed around during that time that the disciples stole the body. Nevertheless, whatever happened to the body, the tomb was empty. It wasn't, the body wasn't in the tomb. Second point. Third point, scholars agree that various individuals and groups of people experienced something that they took to be the resurrected Christ, principally here, the apostolic band. These are people who had a testimony about something that happened, and the scholars believe that something happened. The thing that happened was powerful enough to convince them that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what it is that happened, well, that's another question, and that's actually what we're looking at here. But the fourth fact that that everyone agrees on is that James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, and Saul, the persecutor of Christians, both were converted from skepticism and from outright denial and persecuting Christians because they thought that they met the risen Christ. So not only did this group of apostles believe they saw Jesus, but so did a skeptic and someone who was given his life to persecute Christians, had his life changed because of an encounter with the risen Christ. Now, those are the things they agree with. By the way, there's nothing supernatural about any of these things. You've got a dead Jesus. You've got an empty tomb. You've got people who say they had an experience. And one group of those people that say they had an experience were people that were disinclined to believe it to begin with, especially Saul of Tarsus. Now, the question that's being asked now is, given those minimal facts, what best explains those facts? Okay, we have agreement on the death of Christ, the empty tomb, and the experience of sightings, etc. Now, what historians don't agree on is what best explains these four facts of history, but, you know, there aren't many options. So I just want to touch base on a couple of them and give you some idea why they don't work. Okay, here's the first one, and this has been around for a while, that Jesus never really died. It's called the swoon theory. A whole book was written about this about 40 years ago. The swoon theory, Jesus didn't really die. Okay, so let me see if I understand this. You're suggesting that Jesus took all the physical abuse that's described in the historical records, and here I'm talking about him being crucified, pinned to a cross with nails in his hands and his feet and hung naked there all afternoon in the cold April air. And by the way, that doesn't even count the beating beforehand and the scourging and then dragging that cross, right, to Calvary. 
and then being crucified. And then he was run through his chest with a spear. He was declared dead by Roman soldiers. And not only were the soldiers well acquainted with death, by the way, but so were the people. You know, we have a sanitized experience with death. Someone dies, they get hauled away right away. My father-in-law died in the house we live in. And, uh, you know, we made it, said our goodbyes, and then the coroner took him away, or the, actually, it was the funeral home. We did nothing with the body. In their case, though, the family had to attend to the body. And it's very easy to tell a dead body from a living body, especially after the dead body has been dead for just a short while, because physical changes begin taking place, which includes rigor, rigor mortis, for example. And uh, so when the, the, the when Jesus was taken down from the cross, dead, all of these natural signs of death would have begun to appear. There's pooling of the blood. There's all kinds of things. J. Warner Wallace talks about it quite a bit. And as a result, people know a dead body from a living one because corpses look different and feel different. And by the way, if you ever saw a corpse, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And incidentally, in this case, Jesus, because decay begins fairly quickly and all these processes take place, he was packed with over 70 pounds of spices. And that's in the record, John 19, 39, and then laid in a cold grave. So we're being asked to believe as one option for explaining these facts. A couple of days later, he felt a lot better, broke out of the tomb, and convinced his doubtful disciples that he was, what, the resurrected Lord of life? I don't think so. And um, if you want to believe that, well, you're welcome to it, but I think you're too easily satisfied. You're not skeptical enough, all right? Now, the, the, the other option, or another option, and this was popular in the first century, and this is why the rumor went around, and there's some detail in the accounts themselves about how that rumor got started, but basically the rumor was that, that somebody stole the body, and in particular, according to the rumor, it was the disciples that stole the body. And now I want you to think about this. If somebody stole the body, who would it be? Well, you have two groups of people, three groups of people. You have the Romans, the Jews, and the Christians, or the disciples there, because the Christian group wasn't that big at that point, not the committed Christian group. You have the, 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 the disciples. So, well, the Romans wouldn't steal the body. They want Jesus dead. The Jews wouldn't steal the body. They want Jesus dead. And the disciples didn't want Jesus dead, but when he got killed, why would they then pretend like he wasn't dead? And I want you to think about it a moment, because if the disciples stole the body, that would mean that the disciples knew that Jesus had not risen. And then the question is, why would they suffer so much for a lie that they themselves perpetrated? It does not make any sense. And the reason is, is there's a basic rule about lying, okay? And kids figure this out pretty soon. You tell a lie that gets you a benefit, not a lie that, if believed, gets you hurt, right? If you make up a lie, don't invent a story that gets you beaten, that gets you tortured, that gets you crucified upside down or beheaded. Okay, that is not a good lie. <laughs> Imagine the disciples facing this kind of torment, saying, what was I thinking? But none of them took it back. 
The other option, so that's not going to work either, that Jesus didn't really die, and I don't think so. Uh, that Jesus, that somebody stole the body, makes no sense. Who would do that? Okay, okay. here's the, the, the one that has the strongest support of explaining away those details, and that is that the disciples were hallucinating, all right? In other words, they did have an experience, and we acknowledge they had an experience, but the experience that they had was of an hallucination. Okay? Now, keep in mind that this explanation does nothing to explain the missing body, because if they were hallucinating, their mis- th- th- this could be made obvious to them by just producing the body, which would be there in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But there's another problem with this. Um, not only does it not explain the empty tomb, but it would require that the disciples, as a group, had not just one hallucination, but many hallucinations. All of the accounts of the disciples apparently in, encountering Jesus, and these each of these, not only in Jerusalem, but in Galilee, were, over a period of 40 days, were all hallucinations by the group. Now, I want you to think about a hallucination, what that is. Hallucinations are mental events that are first-person private. In other words, if I have a hallucination, you cannot see it. You can stand right next to me, and you can't see my hallucination, because my hallucination isn't projected out there. It is inside me. I'm unaware of it as something out there, but it isn't out there. That's why you can't see it. It's kind of like a dream. You can't wake your wife up, fellas, in the middle of the night, say, honey, I just had a great dream. Hold my hand, let's both get back to sleep, and we'll have the same dream. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the movie, uh, whatever that movie was, notwithstanding. Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, that's Hollywood. That doesn't happen in real life. So so th- you, you can't have... A, 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 the hallucination explanation does not fit with the nature of an hallucination. How do you produce exactly the same detailed hallucination in the minds of a dozen of people, of, do, of a dozen or more people, at exactly the same time, many times over, in many different settings? This doesn't work. And by the way, do you, do you know the difference between a dream and reality? Um, I do. And I suppose they did, too. All right? So, in the final analysis... We have to ask the question, given these minimal facts, and frankly, I just gave you, my iteration gave you four. There are different ways to divide these up, and there are more than four. They are quite, you know, 10, 15, but of course, when you hit 10 or 15, you're not minimal anymore. This is meant to be an accessible argument. Simple. In the final analysis, there is no explanation that, watch this, fits the evidence better? And that's the question here. The ones that fit the evidence better. We, we are not disqualifying certain answers because philosophically we don't like them. We are disqualifying certain answers because they don't fit the evidence. No explanation fits the evidence better than the explanation actually given 
by those previously gutless disciples, right? Those same men whose knees were knocking behind locked doors, who were now putting their lives on the line for this testimony, he who was dead is alive, he has risen. I mean, think about it. What would, what would transform a group of shivering, shaking men who had scattered, who had abandoned Jesus, who, one at least, had denied he ever even knew Jesus, there they were hiding from the authorities, door locked, lights out. What could transform them into vibrant witnesses for Jesus, standing in the face of the authorities who threatened to flog them? Peter, in this case, saying in Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. He is threatened with flogging in Acts chapter 4. We, even so, do what you must, but we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Or take Saul of Tarsus, what would cause a man so dedicated to his religion that he rounded up, according to the testimony, men and women to have them beaten and executed because they proclaimed a risen Christ. What would cause such a person to turn on a dime and then take his place with those he persecuted on Christ's behalf, eventually giving his life for the very gospel he previously despised? What explains that? And it just seems to me only one answer will do. In Peter's words, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Acts 2.32. To which we are all witnesses. And so this is where it all kind of comes together. You ask me how we know he lives? We know he lives because he rose from the dead. You ask me how we know he rose from the dead? Because we saw him. That's what the disciples said. We saw him. It wasn't a subjective feeling that the apostles appealed to. In fact, there is no appeal, a subjective appeal of any kind in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament to demonstrate to others that Christ is the risen Savior or Christ is who he claimed to be. It was always the resurrection itself that was the evidence as, as, uh, as, as characterized by the people who said they witnessed it. And like I said, if they, if they didn't witness it, they were either lying, that doesn't work, or they were hallucinating, that doesn't work either. There's only one option left. They actually saw the risen Christ. And that's what explains it. You ask me why I know he lives? Uh, not because he lives within my heart, because I don't feel that all the time. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But my feelings do not change the fact of a resurrection that is verified, justified through other means. Eyewitness testimony that we have every reason to believe is reliable. You ask me how I know he lives? Because he rose from the dead. And people witnessed it and then 
risked their lives for that testimony. All right, let's go to break and uh, take your calls here on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STR Ask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STR Ask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. here at Stand to Reason, Greg Kokel, your host, and I uh, got some callers here, which is good. I haven't talked to anybody in about three weeks, so uh, let's go to, oh, we got Australia here. Let me find the, oh, I saw that line light up. Hey, this is George in Australia. Good to have you on board, George. Yeah, hi. How you doing, buddy? Um, yeah, good. <laughs> hmm. um, yeah, look, I'll just jump straight to, jump straight to my question. Um, I love apologetics and what STR does because it addresses the really important intellectual side of Christianity. Uh-huh, good. Um, and you introduced me to your piece on decision-making and the will of God uh-huh. back in 2005. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned with that, uh, at least in the presentation, um, is that sometimes people feel like their relationship with God is taken away yes. when, they, right. when they look at this. Right. Um, so I'd, I'd just love it if you could elaborate as much as possible on what does the personal, emotional, intimate side of your walk with God look like. Right. Um, Did and, you say my what, own my own walk with God, or what that looks like uh, sans this doctrine? I mean, without this teaching, if this teaching is taken away, what, what does the walk with God amount to? What's left, or are you asking me about my own personal walk with God? Yeah, I suppose your your own personal one, one, and and also like what the biblical basis or rationale is for for that. Okay, um, I'd, I'd love I'd love it if even the whole thing of SDR could could do this. But let's start with you. <laughs> okay, well, there, there's a difficulty. 
there's a liability of answering the question precisely the way you've offered it, and I'll tell you what that is. Um, just to bring other people up to speed um, who may not be familiar with the issue we're talking about, I've talked for many years. I started in 1982 teaching this because I had come to the conviction that the uh, the received tradition of evangelical Christianity, that every Christian can hear the voice of God or be directed individually by God as a matter of course, as the ordinary characteristics of their daily life be directed by God uh, through being led by the Spirit. Oh, and there's lots of different characterizations of how this works. But basically, the individual Christian is getting his own personal revelation from God regarding details of decisions he needs to make in his life. Okay, And I do not deny God's ability to do that or the actuality of that happening, but what I have taught is that this is not taught in Scripture as a normal part of the Christian life. And indeed, the idea of an individual Christian being communicated directly with and propositionally by God, and that's the issue. I'm not talking about whether we feel God's presence or we, we're aware that we're children of God, Romans 8, um, Paul talks about that, but but rather that we are getting directives or directions from God that are personal and private to us. That's what I dispute. It is not a biblical model of decision-making. Not that it doesn't happen on occasion, but the occasions that we find in the Bible are rare, and something else is going on. And part of my teaching about decision-making and the will of God, that's the name of the material that people can get at our website, Um, and it's also in a booklet where I talk about a lot of the verses that are used to justify this this technique or this this concept, Um, and that booklet is called uh, Does God Whisper, okay? you know, I started my sentence, but I wasn't sure now where I was taking it. But in any event, those are the those are the materials we have, and, and part of it is that that the Bible teaches a different technique of decision making, and not the hearing from God model or trying to figure out through different hints that God drops like like uh, you know Hansel and Gretel bread things whatever along the path that we have to decipher and figure out what God is hinting us to do and that's how we know God's will now so there's a very very brief sketch of my concern oh I know what I was going to add Th- that what ends up happening lots of times is people end up doing lots of foolish things thinking they are following the commands of God and when you try to talk them out of foolishness, then they say, but I have to do what God has told me to do. And they're not talking about obeying a biblical command here. They're talking about the personal revelation they think that God has given them. So um, that's basically the, the broader concept. Now, I do talk in the teaching about th- when, when I teach to groups about this, th- one objection is I am removing from them a very personal element of their relationship with God. And my answer is, yes, I understand how if you if, by, if God is not talking to you in the way that you think that He is, that you're removing something that you take as being personal. I get that, okay? The real question is whether the Bible teaches that thing or not. Because what people may have thought was a personal part of their relationship 
might have had nothing to do with God at all. I mean, the number of Mormons are legion who believe that God has given them individually a burning in the bosom about the truth of the Book of Mormon, and then by application, Mormonism itself as a religious system. Okay? And so if you take away the legitimacy of the burning in the bosom, bosom, that takes away some affective, subjective, emotional, personalized element that they have connected with God. But it's, it's, mis, it's, a, it's an error in their case. And part of what I'm arguing is that it's an error in this case, too. Okay? And I will get to the point of my personal relationship with God in just a moment. Okay, uh, George, but I wanted to lay the foundation here so, so we don't take my personal relationship as, as some kind of either justification or invalidation of the view that I'm promoting. Because the view is either justified, either validated or invalidated by the text, not by any person's individual experience. Some people can say, well, it works for me. Well, that's, the question isn't whether it works for them. The question is whether it's taught in the Bible. That's my whole point. And, and uh, as apart from my own personal relationship with God with my view, or somebody else's personal relationship with God with an opposing view, the real question is, what does the Bible teach? And so that's what I really seek to emphasize. But I'm completely sympathetic with the idea that people think, well, now you're taking God away from me. Okay, and I, I, I understand why they'd feel that. The question that we have to ask is, are there biblical reasons that God was in what they were experienced to begin with? That's the question. And if their relationship with God is based principally on the sense that God is continuously or regularly kind of whispering in their ear, and the Bible doesn't teach that, then I'm, my response is that your relationship with God is very shallow. Because it is, not, it, does not, it is not built on a biblical foundation, but something that's non-biblical that you take to be God. I've had people even say to me, well, what's the use of the Holy Spirit then? If, if, if the Holy Spirit isn't speaking to us in the way we claim. It's so ironic when I hear that, though. In fact, a long time ago, when I was doing regular radio, someone called in, a woman, and she said, well, that, all I have left is the book then. That's what she said. But what book do you think she was referring to, George? <laughs> the Bible. Yeah, I got the booby prize. All I got the Bible. Well, the Bible's the Word of God, for goodness sake. Why would you treat it like the booby, booby prize? Like, oh, that's all I've got left. All right. But that's what she said. And I think that's the opinion that some people have regarding these things. Okay. And so, um, so, so with regards to the work of the Holy Spirit, you can look, look up any book of theology, of, say, systematic, and find pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and you find all these things that the Holy Spirit does that Scripture attests to. So if a person says, if you take away God speaking in my ear, the Holy Spirit, then there is no Holy Spirit. What does he do? Then you know nothing about what the Holy Spirit does in the Bible. Because the only thing you think he does, I don't mean you, George, but the person who's saying this, the only thing they think that the Holy Spirit does is whisper in your ear for guidance. And if he doesn't do that, then what good is he? That means they know nothing about the New Testament doctrine or the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That shows a, a, a deficiency in their understanding of the third person of the Trinity. All right? So um, 
the fact is, this idea that every Christian gets these words from God in that way is historically new. Uh, J.I. Packer says it's 150 years old or so at the most, mid-19th century. Before that, this was not the sense of Christians, but you had Christians that had vibrant subjective experiences with God, vibrant, joyful relationships with God, even though they didn't think that God was speaking to them in that sense. What, what they often said is, God spoke to me from his word. In other words, they were convicted by a teaching, exegetically sound teaching from the text that the Holy Spirit drove into their heart and used to change their life. Not a private revelation, but a public revelation of God's Word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so historically Christians have, have uh, gotten close to God by meditating on the, the, the Word of God and the truths that are part of it, and by the closeness they experience of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the Spirit is there to comfort them and to teach them and to help them, uh, and do all, all these other things, just as Jesus is there to be their friend and to, to die for their sins and to intercede for them, as the Holy Spirit also does. So these are all biblical things that, that, uh, that Jesus, the second person, and the third person of the Trinity do for us, and the Father does also. And so when we enjoin these biblical truths, that has an emotional effect on us, all right? So there's no reason to think that if you abandon the idea that God speaks individually to each person, that this means that God, well, that, that, that the Holy Spirit is gone and there's no relationship with God, um, th then um, if, if that, then you, my view is, I mean, it seems to me, if your relationship with God is not based on a biblical foundation, then maybe you don't have a, a, a rich relationship with God. My suspicion is most Christians have a combination. It's they understand the Word to be the Word of God, and they are ministered to, in a certain sense, by the Word of God to their heart. But at the same time, there's this subjective element that they think really ties them into God. And by the way, I can understand that. There are powerful religious experiences that people have. Um, I'm reading the biography of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a Welsh preacher of uh, the early and mid uh 20th century, and uh, he, he's, you know, he's a solid Bible guy, but he had two very powerful experiences with God. A uh, flash of light, an overwhelming sense of the Lord's presence, and whatever. But that was a manifestation of God's glory to him that had a powerful impact on him. He wasn't him regularly getting messages from God. He got that from Scripture, and that's how he grounded his Christianity. Now, last thing, George, um, and because your question um, was was about, you know, I'm just pausing for a minute because I'm trying to think of the best use of my time here. Um, I, I have, I just got like 10 minutes to go here and, and I want to hear your response to this. And so, but I got some other callers up. I think what I might do is just go right to the other callers instead of doing the commentary I've prepared for today and just see how that goes. So uh, I've got John, who I definitely want to talk to, and Ryan uh, also coming up. I, uh, uh, I want to stay on, you know, let me just talk with, uh, with George a little longer on this issue, and then we'll go over the top of the hour, and you won't have to wait past the commentary, so I'm just letting you guys know that. But, um, okay, so you're with me so far, what I've said, George? Yeah, yep. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Okay, so the important question here is not a question, is what does this doctrine make me feel like with regards to my relationship with God? Does it make me feel like I've lost God or not? That's not the right question. The right question is whether the, the, what, whether the teaching that I've just described is sound or not, whether the criticism I'm offering towards this, this approach to relationship with God um, is biblically accurate or not. And if it is biblically accurate, accurate, this then requires that we need to adjust our thinking to make it more biblical about what it means to be in relationship with God. All right? So that's the foundation. Now the question comes to me personally. What is my personal relationship with Christ like? And, uh, and, and does this teaching that I'm talking about, what I think is biblical teaching, how does that influence my personal relationship? Well, I don't know that it influences my personal relationship, because when I came to the conclusions I just described in 1982, it was when the first time I taught about it, and since 76 I had become a Christian, so that's 16 years. I was 16 years old, 86, no wait, uh, no, I was only six years old in Christ. For those six years, from yeah, I was six years old in Christ when I came to this understanding. For those six years, I kind of wallowed about with this other view, which didn't seem to be working very well for me, and it doesn't work for a whole lot of people. And this is why people come to me after they hear the teaching, they say, well, I'm glad you, somebody finally said this is not workable, because it's not biblical. Okay? Now, uh, so it isn't like I had this l- sense of loss. What I had was a sense of clarity. When I started realizing this, and this is what other people, they, they feel a sense of relief that they're not substandard Christians because they don't hear God talking to them kind of thing. Now, however, would I like it if God just gave me a private, uh, um, you know, display of his presence? <laughs> Duh, of course. In fact, there are times that I've asked for that because I have found myself in 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 laboring through long periods of anguish, personal anguish, for a number of different reasons. I don't need to go into that. But I'm I'm not different than most Christians in that regard. It's hard. Living in this fallen world as a follower of Christ is hard. And partly not because we're fighting the world, but because we're fighting God. <laughs> and what I mean by that is God is committed to, to change us from what we used to be into something he wants to make us. And that becomes the hardest part, quite frankly. That's the hard dealing with God, not dealing with the world, in my view, at least in my own life, because, you know, I haven't shed any blood to believe in Jesus, you know, like the apostles. So the world has, is a lot less trouble than God is in my life. Um, but God has committed himself to put us through the paces so that we can become different people, more like Jesus. That's the promise of Romans 8. You know, God's causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose to make us more like Jesus. Keep reading that passage. You'll see that. Okay. So, um, the, the, I would love during dark times when the heavens seem brass to me and God doesn't seem like he's responding to my prayers or changing things in my life so I see his hand at work. That's when I would like him to just show up in a subjective way. Just give me a thunderbolt. I'm ready for it. I need a miracle. I can, I'll take it. So I'd love to have that be the case. But that is not something for me to decide. That is, a, that is up to the sovereign purposes of God. 
Those things do happen. I believe this, but they happen in his way and his timing. As he decides, and they're rare. Most of the time in our relationship with God, it's just, are you married, George? Yeah. Okay, how long have you been married? Uh, 15 years this year. 15, okay, so you're past the honeymoon, right? <laughs> I suspect. Yeah. Now, marriage, I think, is could be one of the deepest, most deeply satisfying relationships that he, a human being can have, certainly. Mm-hmm. However, there is an ordinariness of it day-to-day after the honeymoon. You may be growing deeper in love if things are going well, deeper in, in your union with your wife, but even so, it, it isn't all fireworks like maybe it was early on. And that's just the nature of relationships, if that makes sense. And I think in, in this regard, it's true for God, too. And it is, it, the, the, the notion is famous from writers for thousands of years, 2,000 years, about the, what's called the hiddenness of God. How even for believers, God seems hidden. He's not just always sitting on our shoulder talking in our ear. He's like, he doesn't see, where is he? It's like Aslan, if you follow C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan is not a tame lion, and he's not always sitting around taking care of things overtly in a way you could see him. Now, it turns out when he finally does show up and reveal himself that you know he's been in charge all along. And that's the point that I think Lewis is trying to make. So I think, it, in my case, my relationship with God is more uh, toned down in a certain sense, emotionally, because I think that's my temperament. Uh, other people have a much more vigorous, buoyant kind of experience with God, because that's their temperament, too. So I think some of our individual experience with God is based on our temperament, how we generally respond to things, and also how God sovereignly works in our lives. But what I need to do is make sure that however I pursue God, that pursuit is governed by a biblical standard or guideline or a biblical motif, and it's not—I'm not artificially kind of pumped up emotionally by a false understanding about how the Holy Spirit is supposed to work in our lives. So, I mean, I've been talking for 20 minutes, so I kind of pretty much said my piece there, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about what I've said, George. Yeah, um, uh, the motivation for the question is, um, a, is is really about the biblical accuracy. You know, like like the the project that you have is to go. Well, let's look at um, how do we biblically make decisions. Right. There's this tr- traditional, uh, I think you call it a traditional model. Um, yeah, it turns out the traditional model, which is the received model, isn't really traditional, as it turns out. But that's the way people think of it, because everybody's—they they, they accept this way of looking at it, the led-by-the-Spirit-hearing-the-voice-of-God approach, by default, because this is they, they, it never occurred to them to question it, since it seems everybody in their community believes it. So, yeah, that's why it's called the traditional model. Yeah, so, so we want to we wanna correct that to have a, uh, a biblical— model of how we make decisions. And so then the motivation for the question is because I also resonate with, with the, the woman that says, oh, well, then what, you know, you've taken, taken the relational aspect out. And, and so then I'm like, okay, so how do, what is the biblical uh, way of having the relational side with God? Right. 
And that's really, um, you know, let's correct that side and, and offer that sure. proactively, um, so, which is why I was kind of very interested to hear yeah. you know, well, good. your, your sort of things. Yeah. I'm glad I had a chance to explain it. And uh, the biblical base has to do with obedience and prayer and worship and, and meditation on God and engaging and, and making these kind of Christian um, disciplines a, a part of our lives and uh, and then the emotions kind of come and go it's just like trying to be trying to be a good uh, a good husband after you've been married for a long time I mean you got a high point you got low points but you want to be steady Eddie in terms of your commitment and your display of love kindness and your closeness you know, and that's kind of how that that all works out. You're going to have times when it's going to be harder in a marriage, and it's other times it's going to be like it feels like the honeymoon is back again for a little while. It's good for you, but uh, that's the way relationships work, and I think that's also the case with God. In any event, thank you, George, for your call. It's great talking to uh, someone down under again. It's been a while, and uh, thank you, friends, for being part of the show. I'm Greg Kokel. Uh, by the way, if you're hanging on, hang on. I'll be right with you. Give them heaven, friends, for life.